0: your home, your work, and your relationships. Three segments, three building blocks of your existence. They are the three pillars that
1: quite simply make up your life. Change is scary. Do you hate your work? Are you stuck in a city that doesn't feel like home? Do you want more from the relationships that end up defining who you are? If so, this one's for you.
0: So how can we use deeper knowledge of these three pillars to better ourselves and avoid their traps? Let's find out. Welcome listeners to Subject Matter. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Subject Matter, everybody. This is the penultimate episode of season one. Tom, can you believe we're almost at the end of our 15
1: episode streak? You know what, Ben? 15 episodes, season arc, 14 in. It feels great to be finishing up this race, but at the same time, the finish line is probably just another new beginning. And speaking of new beginnings, I've been thinking a lot about stability recently. It's a great concept, but there can be too much of a good thing, right? As we know from subject matter, change is essential to growth. So Ben, my question for you, what is one way you shook your foundation to the core to grow this week. I'll tell you, Tom, one thing I've really had to rethink recently
0: is Instagram. For the last four years, I've been posting it as a photographer and using it for my landscape photos, but I'm realizing I'm missing a huge opportunity to spread the message and the good gospel of subject matter. So I'm starting to treat myself as a client and use Instagram for that content. And so yesterday I went ahead and shot four videos, bringing up to five, and now I'm going to be using Instagram in a totally different way. We've got some new videos dropping soon. Um, Shout out to Nico as well, who I know listens to subject matter for all your patience and help filming yesterday. Everybody listening, watch this space.
1: Or instead of just watching, go follow him at at Ben Bradbury on Instagram. Always
0: plugging. Thank you very much, Tom. Well, same question right back at you. What's one way that you've shaken your foundations to grow this week?
1: Well, as you know, I like to live a really dull life. So in the last four days, I've uh, found a New York City apartment, moved to New York City. I'm in the middle of raising money on Lunchbox. And quite frankly, I'm loving the thrill of all the chaos. Just a
0: standard week in the life of Tom Worcester, ladies and gentlemen. Well, it sounds like you've made a pretty radical change, Tom. You moved your home. And that is one third of what we're discussing here today, listeners. And those are the three pillars that govern your life. Because your life can be broken down into those three parts, your home, your relationships, and your work. And the key insight to remember is this, to make any radical change in one area, you must find balance in the other two. Otherwise, life descends into chaos, doesn't it, Tom?
1: Well, yeah. For example, an entrepreneur, the smartest one in the world, who is also in a failing relationship while also trying to get a risky new venture off the ground, simply has too much in their head, too much occupying their mind space to fully grab the opportunity in front of them. So the question is, which pillars are supporting you at any given moment? This episode, we'll be looking at the strengths of deploying each of the pillars strategically viewed by examples of people throughout history who managed to do the same, along with a few cautionary tales along the way.
0: And we start today with where the heart is, and that is, of course, your home. Home is our first pillar, and it is your anchor. You can't choose where you're born, but you can choose where you spend your life. But what if you focused yourself, indeed your life's work, around just one country, one core belief? one home. We need look no further to see the power of tapping into deep cultural understanding, the kind that can only really come with being the native of one particular country than the very man whose rousing speeches stirred the Allies to reclaim the Normandy beaches, and that was Winston Churchill. Churchill is remembered as the British Prime Minister of World War II, but he was also a prolific writer, And this skill was rarely idle. In 1929, before he became prime minister, Churchill's capital-focused conservative government lost power to the more socialist-focused Labour Party in the British general election. And over the next two years, Churchill became estranged from the conservative leadership that he had so dearly followed and was eventually not invited to join their cabinet altogether. This was undoubtedly his career's low point, and he entered
1: into a period he called the Wilderness Years. Ben, you left New York for London in August. One international flight does not put you in your Wilderness Years quite yet.
0: (laughs) I'll see if I can make it to 30 before entering that phase of my life. Thank you very much, Tom. Now, unfortunately for Churchill, this meant that his work had been turned on its head. One of his three, his professional pillar, his work, had been shattered. He'd gone from an esteemed position in government to cast out on the street, and no doubt it would have been easy to fall into a pit of sorrowful despair. But Churchill had already proven his worth as a writer, and now he again embraced wielding the pen over the sword. And besides his words, he had another asset— an even greater strength, a deep knowledge of his home country. Comfortably situated in his home in Kent, in the heart of the country he so dearly fought for, he used his home pillar to rediscover the meaning of his work, He completed a breakthrough book, A History of the English-Speaking Peoples, providing deep insight into where his ancestors had stemmed from, along with a biography of his ancestor, John Churchill, the Duke of Marlborough. And Churchill may have left the government altogether, but from his home in Kent, his fortress, he ensured that even during his wilderness years, he would never completely leave the limelight." Churchill didn't try and reinvent himself by starting anew overseas, but doubled down on the environment instead he was intimately familiar with. And in fact, starting anew overseas would simply have risked upsetting the same pillar that gave him the power to stay relevant in the first place. In fact, Churchill had made this very same play before. When his pillar of work was again taken away from him after losing his seat in the 1923 election, he turned obstacle into advantage by writing The World Crisis, a six volume history of the First World War, and was able to remain prominent throughout. Now ask yourself was this a defense mechanism or part of a much larger offensive? Along with his speeches, Winston Churchill's historical writings earned him the Nobel Prize in Literature. And he would, of course, go on to become Prime Minister of the United Kingdom as well. But this all came from going all in on the pillar he believed in most, and that was the power of his home
1: country. Okay, Ben, we get it. You're a patriot too, you beautiful British writer, you. Now, in Churchill's case, home is clearly where the heart is. But let's be clear for a second. Churchill... Might have made his name in Britain, but he was also a constant traveler, too. He spent many months in expensive hotels on the French Riviera and his friend's chateaus. His time at home was constantly balanced with recharging overseas. It was balanced by changing his mindset under the umbrella of his social pillar of relationships, which was comprised by heads of state, elevated thinkers, and mind-bending intellectuals. More on the power of that pillar later. Now Churchill's time away goes deeper than just for storing his energy. He was applying one of—wait for it—my favorite concepts: changing his context. Oh, where have we heard this one before? I wonder. Uh, I don't know, Ben. Subject matter episodes one, two, five, seven, eight, nine, ten—every like, <laughs> every single one. <laughs> now, doubling down on your current home may serve you well. But it's only when we go beyond that that we start to learn how things can fit together beyond our current bracket of knowledge. Introducing the story of Nobuyuki Matsuhisa, or more simply, the man known as Chef Nobu. At the end of the 19th century in Japan, a rumor spread that this country on the opposite side of the world was full of gold. It was a tropical paradise with rich soil for farming and could offer immigrants double their usual wage to farm the fertile land. That country was Peru, and soon became the aim of many Japanese to finally move to. Fast forward over 100 years. Chef Nobu was working in a sushi restaurant in Tokyo. Now, a regular customer of his establishment a Japanese Peruvian descended from those same immigrants, invited Nobu to open a restaurant on the other side of the world, in Lima, Peru. Notice the business he's in. His work has not changed the same restaurant, but a different location. Nobu accepted. Where Churchill stayed with his home and found strength in his country, Nobu instead moved about as far as he could away from what he knew. Now, when he decided to do this, Nobu found that he couldn't find many of the ingredients that Japanese dishes required, except for fresh fish. He had to improvise, using alien ingredients like olive oil, garlic, and chili paste to make the same dishes that he was able to develop with critical acclaim on the other side of the world. He called this cultural fusion courageous food. It was the same cooking process, the same underlying work, different ingredients. Therefore, different context. Today, that same courageous food is loved by a cult following of fans that spans the entire globe. Nobu took his innovation to New York, opening up a restaurant with regular customer Robert De Niro. And now, Nobu has chains all around the world. Make no mistake, Ben, his success came from not being afraid to shake his home pillar. But at the same time, the nature of his work and his work pillar remained stable. Nobu knew that he could only get so far in the bubble of his home country. As a means of catalyzing your growth, know when it's time to step out of that bubble, even if that means traveling to the opposite side of the world. Just make sure that travel is the only pillar you're actually shaking.
0: Tom, of course you had to bring Nobu into this. Well, I guess that means the next meal is on you, hey? We're ignoring something, though. The drive that it took to shake these different pillars in the first place. Success is 5% inspiration and 95% perspiration. Your story, Tom, forgets the real factor that mobilized Nobu, his hard work. Before Nobu reached superstardom, he had to hone his craft. And the real success didn't just come from switching home. It came from his work in a humble Los Angeles sushi restaurant with just six seats, where he worked for six and a half years, perfecting his unique Peruvian Japanese dishes. That second pillar of work you keep banging on about, Tom... Let's get into what the real conversation is here, how to develop that pillar into something that's stable in the first place and something you can use strategically. Now, as we'll come to see later listeners, neither Tom or I are believers in overwork or burnout, but there is a key difference between feverishly overworking yourself and working for something you believe in. In fact, I don't think it's bad to work hard for something you care deeply about at all. Like we are with subject matter recording and editing this for you on a Sunday afternoon right now. People who can push themselves to live in these environments are the ones I'd bet on for success later, frankly. Extreme people tend to get extreme results. And this phenomenon matters even more for young people because your time is worth exponentially more. The momentum you get from learning a skill just compounds over time. And it's not just a time of a day, a week, or even a year. These skills compound
1: for a lifetime. It's not just the things you do well, too. Compounding can actually work against you. Sleeping on a bad mattress for 30 years leads you to needing back surgery and possibly developing a stoop. Be aware of the compounding effects in your life across all areas, good and bad. Poverty pays dividends. That's true, Tom. But if I learn coding when I'm
0: 25, there's a much bigger chance I'll create something impactful than if I start at, say, 85. Hard work compounds like interest. And the earlier you do it, the more time you have for the benefits to pay off. Now, we're not asking you to work yourselves to death, listeners. But if you're lucky enough to find something under the pillar of your work that you care deeply about... Well, it's in your best interests to act quickly and to make it happen. Or put more simply, live your life today like few people will, so you can live
1: later like few people can. The earlier that you can work out the power of this equation, specifically with compound interest, the better. While I'm far from living the life that few people can, as Ben's mentioned, I have started on my path, especially after seeing the effects of this, I'm my first business, Loopy Laces. We founded it in September of 2015. We were on a college campus, and there were a number of very engaged student organizations that like to identify themselves in specific ways, in this case, with their shoes. Once we realized that these shoes were a blank canvas for a product, we got started. So after acquiring the licensing rights for organizations, after interviewing anybody on campus who would talk to us, And after putting together some bad designs, we came out with a line of organization shoelaces, which was a simple pattern, simple logo with the organization's colors. We got started. And because we did, we started to stack the odds in our favor for succeeding later on. We at least were trying things that weren't perfect yet. So we took that next step. We acquired our licensing rights. We landed on campus in January of 2016 and sold thousands of pairs of shoelaces to student organizations that had never seen them before. Bad idea? Good idea? Execution. Starting to work again in our favor. Fast forward 18 months later, this company had turned into 60 plus different products from shoelaces to phone cases to anything that we thought a student organization would want to buy in bulk. With this bulk merchandise play, we scaled in over 100 college campuses and 25 stores nationally. We were still just getting started, but the lessons that we chased early on started to turn into more, to turn into that later success. Now, it's easy to say, oh, 100 plus campuses, 25 plus stores nationally. Did pretty well, right? Yeah, and no. We made a lot of mistakes too. We rocked the other pillars of our lives with bad relationships and a rocky period of transition from the collegiate world to the professional world. We were rocking all of our pillars at the same time, and that hit our bottom line. Our cash flow wasn't nearly balanced enough. We spent $3,000 overspending on packaging for the aesthetic over anything else. We could have hit more campuses while we were trying to be students. We wanted to have the best of both worlds. And as a result, the business wasn't as strong as it could be. But coming back to everything, we at least got started. The lessons designing, the lessons negotiating working with factories, importing products internationally. All of these lessons started to lay a really impressive foundation for us to build something bigger later. These skills earned through working for something I believed in now applied today to my latest venture, Lunchbox. We have a top five project on Kickstarter, hitting number four in December of 2018. We were able to achieve this with tight organization, a product launch timetable, and shameless promotion, where we basically split out every possible channel and approach him as a full time job. It was the same process as bringing shoelaces to college campuses in 2016, but with a better top down approach and improved execution. That same way we scaled to 100 campuses with loopy laces is the same foundation for us leading to a top five project on Kickstarter. We had 50,000 in sales in the first month of 2019, achieving more sales in one month than Loopy did in its first year. And it worked. Now, here on Subject Matter, we are not advocates of overworking and pushing yourself to the beyond limit, and we're definitely not advocates of burning out. But hard work, applied over time, in a sustainable manner, in areas where your ability to learn can scale, it stacks the odds in your favor. Because when you think big, you really only have to be right once. Who will you be when you're ready for that moment? But
0: there is one factor that can make the same quantity of work in the extreme that Tom's talking about easier to bear. And that's our final pillar for today, listeners, focusing on your relationships. There's no doubt you can't go through life's journey alone. Is it better to share your best self with others and rely on them for support then? Or should you get others to rely on you? My final story for today is an extreme example of a reliant relationship. In the 8th century BC, the people of Medea had just revolted from their masters and were free. The Medes celebrated, except there was one small problem. They didn't have a leader. But in one village, a man had become known for settling disputes. His name was Diocese. And quickly, his reputation as an arbiter of fairness spread throughout the kingdom. Before long, Diocese was the sole judge of justice in the land. His relationship with the Medes couldn't have been better. But at the height of his power, he stepped down. He proclaimed to the Medes that he had spent too much time handling their affairs and needed some time to himself. But Diocese was ambitious. He knew the Medes weren't just thankful for his ability to keep the peace, they were totally reliant on it. And sure enough, as soon as he stepped down, the country once again fell into chaos. The Medeans had become totally dependent on one person, one relationship to just function normally. And so, after much begging from them, Diocese eventually agreed to once again rule the Medeans As king. Now, I don't advise anyone listening today to become reliant on one person to function as a normal member of society as the Medes did. Not a good life strategy for the 21st century. But you can't deny that this worked for the Medes. For them, having Diocese rule as king cemented the stability of their relationships pillar and allowed them to flourish. In fact, Diocese would go on to rule the Median Empire for 53 years. The story of Diocese might be a word of warning for anyone who risks becoming too dependent on someone. But it also provides a deeper lesson too. The Medes had found that one relationship that gave them stability, that one person, and that is a principle you can use in your life today. Who are not just the one person, but who is the handful of people that enable you to live in your peak state It's your job to look for those people, those relationships that don't just give you stability, but allow you to thrive because those relationships can be relied on to make you the best version of yourself.
1: So the Medeans have a great case of what happens where people are fully reliant on you. But Ben, that's not the only way to operate. What if instead of making people hyper-reliant, you're hyper-transparent instead? Look at one of the people with the most prolific personal brands going right now, Gary Vaynerchuk. Love him or hate him, he's got your attention. But do you know what you never have? A window into his private life. Now, Gary may be flashy with his work, but his relationships stay acutely hidden, and that's by design. Having that rock of a partner at home allows him to extend his tether and rock his pillars further and further each day. Compare that to the Obamas. When he was president, Barack was overtly welcoming of attention for not just him, but also for the first lady, Michelle, and their two daughters. Their wholesome family image was certainly designed to convey the picture of stability, but which was more effective? Either way, stability is the result. Now, here on Subject Matter, we speak constantly of the difference between a relationship and the relationship. This is in no place more fitting than in the discussion of the relationship pillar. Beware of finding a relationship that undermines your worth, that leaves you racked with insecurity, and doesn't give you the ability to spend your mental bandwidth where it matters most, in pursuit of growth. These relationships take a tax, and that debt is paid in the form of your happiness every day. The relationships that matter offer stability a safe place from which to take risks and gives you a built-in support network to push ahead, whatever stands in your way.
0: So there we have it, listeners. Three ideas, three pillars, and one path to a stable life. If you're going to make a big change in one, root the other two deep in the ground. It seems simple enough in concept, but developing each of the three to a point of stability is a challenge that spans each and every one of our lifetimes.
1: Don't be afraid to ask yourself the tough questions to find the stability you seek. Are you grounding yourself at home only to miss opportunities? Or are you working yourself to burnout for something that you don't really believe in? Perhaps you have plenty of relationships which are taking up precious space for the relationship. These three pillows of your home, your work, and your relationships make up the sum total of what actually makes life worth living. The sum
0: total of the things that matter. Find some kind of balance in your everyday listener so you can maximize your ability to change the world. But as always, where you choose to draw the line on the subject
1: that matters is up to you. Where you draw the line, or where you decide to place your pillars, Ben, which one will you rock? So thank
0: you all for listening, everybody. And we will see you next time for the final episode of season one of Subject Matter. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard here today, we'd love if you could subscribe if you haven't already over on iTunes and give us a rating or on Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We are probably there. And we'd love to hear from you as well, what you thought of the episode. You can reach Tom on Instagram at realtommypahama. You can reach me at Ben Bradbury. And we would absolutely love to hear your views. So thank you all for listening. And we will see you next time for the final episode of Subject Matter Season 1.